This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, well, starting there at least. <clears throat> we're also going to be reading from chapters 15 and 17. And I'll just say on the outset that this is a lot of information to cover. So we're going to be doing a cursory look at the ideas that are here, particularly the covenant that is made with Abraham as we continue our look into covenant theology. So there's a lot more that can be and has been said concerning Abraham and his covenant. So if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask. We can talk about that. So before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your words, help us to see them as your words, that they carry the weight of the God of the universe. They aren't simply suggestions for how we should live, or maybe a, a little instruction book for life or anything silly like that. They are the words of our Creator, they are the words of the Almighty God of the universe, and they have authority over our lives whether we choose for them to or not. And so, Father, that you would convict us of our sin where it is, and that you would lead us to your truth as we read it in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we come to Genesis chapter 12, I want to talk a little bit about what kind of led up to that. And anytime I think of the episode in chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel, I always think of going to the doctor as a kid. I know that makes a weird connection. But doctors and dentists always had these blue Bibles that weren't really Bibles. They were like picture books that had Bible stories in them. And it was always like just a little bit of the story, and they wanted you to buy the rest. And it was all these really odd pictures. Everyone knows, I see all the nods, you know what I'm talking about. But there was always one picture that I immediately turned to, and I still did that as I see them as an adult, because I like seeing the picture. I don't know why. It's in the back, because it's like, if you want to see more, get the next, get the rest of it, or you can just go get a, a Bible and read it. But either way, it's the picture of the Tower of Babel. It's this big, tall, cone-shaped, thing with a big spiral road staircase thing that's going around it, and you see all these little people building the tower, and that always fascinated me. The story itself is fascinating. Remember, we, we talked last week about the flood. Well, after the flood, and after Noah and his family settled, people began to repopulate the earth. They moved to this valley called Shinar, and they said, let's build a city, and let's build a tower. And obviously that didn't go too well for them. I remember thinking as a kid that their sin was the fact that they were physically trying to reach God. You know, in a lot of these stories, you see this tower kind of goes up into the clouds, and I could picture them like somehow seeing heaven and thinking, well, we only have this much more to go. And that's not actually what was going on there. I don't think they got very, uh, very high before the Lord changed their plans because the physical structure of the tower was not their sin. And it wasn't that God was somehow afraid of these people all of a sudden, the ones that he had just that he had created. 
or that he was too harsh in his punishment of them. These are all things that I thought growing up, all things that I even heard sometimes. As I grew in my understanding of Scripture and as I grew in my understanding of this, of this narrative of the Tower of Babel, this story is about a people who thought that they were God, who thought that they were their own gods. That should ring a bell. It happened in the garden. It happened in Noah's day. It's happening here in this day as well. And they said things like this, and you should hear it in their language. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the Lord came down, and what was what were they deserving of? Death. But he came down instead and showed them mercy and, and scattered them with different languages. Why would he do that for people who are so undeserving? Why doesn't he strike us down? We're so undeserving as well. It's because he made a promise that he would send a deliverer. That there would be a deliverer and that deliverer would, de- would deliver the very people of God. And so even as he scattered them, and even as he made all these different languages, there was one family that he looked at and they found favor with the Lord. And from that family, there would come the one, Jesus Christ, who we talk about every week, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so today we're going to talk about Abraham. We're going to talk about the covenant that God made with him. And we're going to look at three ideas here. The call of Abraham, the promise to Abraham, and then the promise that is kept in Christ. So let's look together at the text. Stand together as we read. I'm going to read from Genesis 12 then 15, and then 17, parts of all of them. All right, Genesis 12, the first three verses here is God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So turn ahead to 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land 
give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all, cut them in half, and laid them, <clears throat> and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and I will be, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and after the, that, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back in the fourth genera- generation, for the in- iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So let's look part at part of 17 as well. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, the, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might make a covenant between me and you, and and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations forever for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all and all of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be made as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So again, as I said, that's a big chunk. But we're going to work through it as one big idea. Now, I want to just paint quickly a picture of Abraham, or Abram, before he was, before God came to him. So remember that Babel this, is this very significant event in history. There weren't very many people when this happened. And This is the first time since the flood that God is directly interacting with the people. And he scattered them all over the place because they just couldn't talk to one another. And it was from those nations that spread out from Babel, there was one that lived beyond the Euphrates in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. 
which is modern-day Iraq. And it's from there that God decided to choose this man that would go to the place that he would show him. And so before we begin to think about Abraham as the best man out there, as the people were walking away from, from the tower, he saw the descendants of Abraham and he said, you know what, those are the people that I'm going to choose one day. It wasn't that at all. Let's look at Joshua 24 real quick. Just keep your finger there in Genesis. <clears throat> Joshua 24 is, is several years down the line, a lot of years down the line. But here in Joshua 24, Joshua is retelling the story of the covenant to the people. And he starts with Abraham. Look at verses 1 and 2. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. It doesn't say, and they served the God of the Bible. It says, and they served other little g gods. And God came to him anyway and said, Abram, go from your country to the land that I will show you. For whatever reason, Abram found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Is it because he was some kind of great, God-fearing man? No. There weren't any great, God-fearing men. Remember Genesis 6. Men were only evil continually in their hearts. They did not do any good. And it didn't change after the flood. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was worshiping other gods. Thankfully, and this is what we should gather from this, thankfully God comes to us while we are worshiping other gods. There's no such thing as a person who God comes to and says, oh, oh, you're already worshiping me, thanks. That doesn't happen. He comes to each of us before Jesus Christ and we who are worshiping other gods. Even if there is no other God, you're always, it's always you. And just like the, those at Babel, you're trying to make a name for yourselves. So don't let us separate ourselves from Abram here in this situation. We too need the grace of God. We too need to have, have been found the favor of God. And so next we come to the call of Abraham, or Abram. And I want to look at the particularity of the call. God called a particular person in a particular time and place. He didn't put, like, flyers on trees. Anyone who's willing to go to the place that I will show them, please show up at such and such date. No, he went to Abram, who was worshiping other gods, and says, you're going to leave this country, and you're going to go to the place that I will show you. 
This should sound familiar to us. We just got through studying Ephesians. What does it say concerning God and the people? From the foundations of the world, there are people that God said, these are my people, and he sets them aside for himself. Just like he did with Abram here. He set him aside for himself in the foundations of the earth. God didn't just one day think, oh, that, that seems like a good plan. He's always had his good plan. And this is part of it. And I want you to see, too, about this, is that Abram was not given an easy route here. Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I mean, I've been out of the country before, only to an English-speaking country, so it was pretty easy in that regard. But it was still so completely different that I can't imagine being left there by myself. It would have been odd. Much less going someplace else where you know they spoke a completely different language, because at that time, everybody spoke a completely different language. And so, Abram was being asked to leave his country. Not only that, he was being asked to leave his kindred, which is no small task. If you've ever moved away from family, we all have at least at one point in our life, in one way or another. It's hard, because those are the people that we know most. Those are the people that we're comfortable with. And leave your father's house. There's no longer going to be any sort of safety net for you. Terah was a rich man where he was. He had lots of stuff. And Abram was very secure and comfortable where he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had no idea where he was going. He had no idea where the Lord was going to show him. But what does it say? So Abram went as the Lord told him. He did it. He went. And there are blessings that the Lord promises him. This wasn't just go and go and I'll show you the, the like treasure box at the end of the journey. No. Go and I will make a great nation of you. I will make a great nation of you. Abram was 75 years old at the time. And he didn't have any kids of his own. 75 is old. Especially to be starting a family. And that family leading to a great nation. Things pretty complex. But the Lord is making this promise to him. And then he says, I will bless you. Why? This should shock us. Because remember, when God came to Abraham, what was he doing? worshiping other gods. He was making a name for himself. He was building a city and a tower for himself. He was doing things for his own glory. But yet, I will bless you and notice what the Lord's going to do. You're not going to have to make your name great because I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And to what degree was Abram going to be a blessing? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What should be ringing in, in Abram's ears? If not Abram's ears, definitely the people who first read this and got through reading all of the first part of this. Maybe, just maybe, this is the part where God is going to save His people from this serpent. That maybe this is this is where God is going to save his people 
from the curse of sin. Maybe this is the beginning of a new thing. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. And not only that, I'm going to protect you so much so that I will curse those who curse you. Why? Because you are my people and I am your God. Now we go on. So look at, let's go to 15. We go on. Some years have passed. And if you're curious as to whether or not Abram remained an upstanding, God-fearing man, he doesn't. Uh, at the end of chapter 12 there, he passes his, his wife off as his sister so they won't kill him. Uh, it doesn't get better. People don't get any better all of a sudden. Uh, they don't. It's, it's not good. But yet, the Lord comes to him in 15 and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That's the Lord's first words to him. But what does Abram say? And I remember that time that you said my reward would be very great. And yet I will be a great nation. Yet, I continue to be childless. And Abram isn't 75 anymore. He's about 90 now. He's a lot older. He's not getting any younger. No children yet from his wife. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. Damascus is in Syria, and this is uh, Syrian, which is interesting. If you're an an, uh, Israelite reading this later on, you're going to think, wow. So one of our enemies was Abraham, the father of our faith, his only heir. Because God hung him out to dry. And so what does God do? He, He reminds him of the promise, and he brought him outside. And he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to do that. And I've never been to, um, to the Middle East and, you know, seen that and seen the deserts and those types of things where there's no cities for miles and miles and miles. But I would imagine that you could see the stars fairly well, unlike we, we just can't see them sometimes around here because of all the, the light. If you could number them, you know, what... The Lord tells us later in his word that he knows the stars by name. He's got them all numbered. But Abram's a mere man, and he can't even begin to look up. I remember as a kid trying to number the stars, and you just get lost somewhere at like 12. All right? And there's, there's a lot up there. Look at the stars, Abram. So shall be your offspring. And what did Abram do? It says he believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the first place in Scripture where the idea of belief and justification in the eyes of God are put together. And it's not the last place. All throughout Scripture we see those two ideas put together. And Paul even uses this event to make that argument in Romans chapter 4. So is Abraham's problem belief in God's promise? It's not. It's actually coming from belief. Think about, for us even, in our own sense of longing for what is right and longing for what is good. And we see things being not good all around us. And we see things that are wrong all around us. And horrifically wrong, some of the things that are currently in the news. Just horrific. And it's not that we don't believe that God isn't going to come 
and that he isn't going to keep his promises. But it's because we believe that we struggle so much with this. And it's in Jesus that we have all of this already. Praise the Lord. However, we still wait. And we still struggle with our own sin. And the sin of the world. And our battle against evil. But God is good to us in that. He's gracious to us. Just like He is here for Abram. And in His graciousness to Abram, what does He do for him? Come out and let me show you something. Look at this. Look at the stars. That's what your offspring are going to be. You can't even count them. And so we are weak. We need a constant reminder of God's promises to us, don't we? I mean, I do. I need to read His Word and hear His promises. And then even sometimes, if I'm honest, His Word's not enough for me. I just need to see something. I need to put my hands on something that is a reminder of the promise. He saw those stars. Here in chapter 15, he was also given this vision of the Lord. You know, where he was told to get up and cut the animals apart. And then he was, this deep sleep came over him. Well, what, why did he cut the animals? Remember, we talked about this ancient covenant-making ceremony where they would put dead animals on both sides and both parties of the covenant would walk down the middle. And it was essentially a self-maledictory oath saying, if I don't keep the terms of the covenant, then may I be as these animals are on both sides of me. Well, what's different here? Does Abraham pass through the middle of the animals? Who passes through the animals? God passes through the animals. God makes a covenant with Abram and says, if I don't keep my promises to you, may I be as these animals are. To your offspring, I give this land. Even though Abram would never see the land, the only land he had when he died was the place he was buried. He was actually told this here in this, in this uh, vision. But he would indeed be a great nation. Now look in 17, Abram is given another sign. The stars and the flaming pot and the torch passing through the animals weren't enough. Ten years pass. Abram is now 99. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I might make a covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Well, what's the problem? No longer is he not 70, or he's, he's not 75 anymore. He's 99. It's not going to get any easier to have children. This is a long wait, even for people who are 99 years old. You know, I'm often told that young people don't have patience. I would think that 24 years is a long time for a 99-year-old even. He needed a further sign, I'm sure. And God does he doesn't even interact on this point. God just goes ahead and says, this will be my covenant with you. Every male in your household shall be circumcised in the flesh of their foreskin. This is the sign of my covenant. This will happen. Why? Because it's a constant, daily reminder to Abram that God is going to keep his promise and that from him are going to come a multitude of nations. 
it was the it was the one that Abram and every single Jewish man this sign they would literally carry it with them everywhere they went. Abram could not forget that God is one who keeps his promises. And I don't want to spoil the end, but does he? Yes, he does. Even though at this point in the story, Abram had kind of given up and had another son named Ishmael, of whom God made a great nation out of. But that wasn't the child of the promise. Isaac was to be the child of the promise, and the Lord delivered and gave him Isaac. And from Isaac comes Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel, who had 12 sons, who would become 12 tribes, a great nation. Does God keep his promises? Absolutely. So that brings us to the next point, a promise kept. How has the coming of Jesus Christ represented the keeping of these promises? Remember, Adam was given a a covenant of works and said, do this and you shall live. And he didn't. So he shall surely die. So a promise was made there in Genesis 3.15 and again with Noah in Genesis 9 and again here with Abram several times called the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is there's going to be one that's going to come that absolutely will keep this promise. This is Jesus Christ, who is of the tribe of Judah. Judah being a son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, son of the promise. So what about the promises made to Abraham? That he would be made into a great nation, a multitude. In the Old Testament, does this happen? Absolutely. Israel is a great nation. But what is Israel's problem? They're not true Israel. They don't follow any of the commands of the Lord. They always want to go over here and see what the Baals and the Asherahs are doing. They never follow the commandments of the Lord, yet the Lord continues to deliver them time and time again. But there is one that came later after the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans all occupied Israel and his name was Jesus, he was a true Israelite. He kept every single law that the Lord laid down. And it's therefore in Jesus, through belief in him, who is this great multitude? Children of God who believe in Jesus Christ. People are the people of God. We are the people of God. We are this great multitude. Even Abraham is part of this great multitude. Why? Because he believed in the promise. God counted it to him as righteousness. Turn to Revelation 11. I find it interesting that as we're working through the book of Genesis, we quote Revelation a lot. And I wrote 11 down in my notes, yet it's actually 7. Excuse me. 7 chapter... Or Chapter 7, verse 9. It says, remember, a great multitude from every nation. It says, after I looked at this, 
and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Does God keep his promises? Did he make of Abraham a great nation? Absolutely. Was Abraham a blessing to every nation of the world? Yes. Not in his day, but from him would come one that every nation of the world would be clothed in white and standing before the God of the creation and on his throne and they would be worshiping him because they are his. And a land? Do we get a land? Absolutely. What did Jesus say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. The new heavens and the new earth. They're ours. In Jesus Christ. Now, do we need a sign today? Yeah. We're not any better than Abram. Is circumcision still a sign of this promise? It's not. But do we still have a sign of the promise? Absolutely. Turn to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching, consequently preaching to men of and women of lots of different nations. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, after his sermon, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The word of the Lord affected them so much so that they said, we don't even know what to do. What do we need to do? And what, this is what Peter says in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What is the promise that he's talking about here? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise that uh, that uh, Luke is talking about here in Acts is the promise that was given to Abraham. How do we know? Look at Galatians chapter 3. This is Paul, a companion of Luke's. They had very similar thinking, I'm sure. Chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, get this, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. 
This spirit is the promise. This is the substance of the promise. In Colossians chapter 2, we read that Paul makes this connection between circumcision and baptism. So, we absolutely have this sign today. It is no longer circumcision. Why? Because circumcision was painful. It was bloody. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that there would be no more bloodshed. Who can receive this sign? Well, what did Peter say? This is for you. This is for your children. This sign of baptism is given to believers and their children as a continuation of that sign. And we'll spend a little bit more time on this. Actually, we'll spend the entire Sunday talking about that particular idea. I know that it raises many questions. But I hope that we've laid some groundwork with that today. But I think the important thing for us is that how is baptism important, or how is baptism helpful to those who have been baptized? I was baptized, but how is baptism still helpful for me today? Just like Abram saw those stars in the sky and believed, just like he carried that actual physical scar with him as a reminder, when I see a baptism, when we see a baptism, we should see that and rejoice as a sign of the promise, as a sign that God keeps his promises. The larger catechism, which we've been going through in Sunday school, question 167, we haven't got that far yet, says this, how is baptism to be improved by us? Meaning, what does baptism do for us today as a believer? And there's a long statement here, but I want you to listen carefully. These, these guys didn't, when they wrote this, they used, they, they didn't mince words. They used very dense language. You could study this passage for weeks and weeks. It says, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements by growing up to assurance of our of pardon of a sin, and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversion in holiness and righteousness, and those who have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love, as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. How does a baptism of another brother or sister or a child of a brother or sister improve my life and make my walk with the Lord better in every way? And I should see that sign as this is, this is a sign to me that God keeps his promises. So in conclusion, so for believers, we have to hang on to these promises of God. We have to. 
the struggles in our life aren't an indicator that he has somehow reneged on his promise. Even in our belief, we will struggle. We will struggle in unbelief as well. But in our belief, we will struggle. And it's those times that we have to cling closer. We have to be around one another. We have to cling closer to his word. Because what other hope do we have? We want to place our hope in Christ because he is the author of our faith. And what else did he say he was? The finisher of our faith. And he says that he will see it through to completion. And, when, and he will bring us home. But if you're here and you don't call yourself a believer, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. There is no other hope. There is no other hope of fulfillment of any kind of promise. You cannot save yourself just by trusting in some worldly thing or even in yourself. You cannot define the terms in which God will save you. You cannot make a name for yourself. Just like those people in Babel. You can't do it. In order to have salvation, you must surrender to the God of the universe. Trust His promises. Trust in His mercy and grace. Believe that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. That you need His death. You need His resurrection to save you. And you can be saved. So again, for believers, be a blessing to the world. Abraham was told he would be a blessing. Who are this multitude that are supposed to continue to be blessing the world? It's us. Be a blessing to the, to the world. Just like in Abraham's day, the world is still dying. It's still lost. And it's still desperate for saving. We know who that is. We should be a blessing. Be a blessing. Act toward the world as if the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that even while we were worshiping other gods, you died so that we might have salvation. And so we pray that you would help us to live as if that's true. And in those times when it's difficult, we would look to the signs that you have given us. Baptism. The Lord's Supper, which we will partake of shortly that we would look to these signs as a remembering of what you have done and that you will indeed keep your promises and you have kept your promises. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.